We've all heard a lot lately about repressed memories. You know the story. Adults, prodded by therapists, who suddenly remember something traumatic that happened to them in childhood. The results can be devastating. But now, there's a new trend. A backlash against psychiatrists who are accused of convincing their patients to believe things that never really happened. First of all, I'd like to state that if I indeed were as clever and as creative as the things that the clients come up with, I should really be uh, a female Stephen King and making millions of dollars instead of sitting in therapist's office. The therapist that I was dealing with was pretty much like a guru to me. And through the course of the therapy that I went through, I literally got to the point where I would have believed just about anything she put into my mind. That is implantation of false memories. It's, it's all nonsense. I was told that anything that happened in my dream state was reality, was really a repressed memory. I'm not here to debate whether or not it's real or not, because it is real. Hello, everyone. You've just heard some contrasting voices on a question of memory. On one side, we have people claiming their therapists made them believe things that never really happened. Terrible things, like being abused by family members, or even as part of a satanic cult. On the other side, the therapists say it is ridiculous to think they have any such power as to induce false memories. What they are doing is recovering repressed memories. Memories of abuse that are all too real. So certain are they of the mind's capacity for this repression that it is not even necessary to debate. This is the memory war. It took place, and perhaps still takes place, broadly speaking between psychologists and psychotherapists. The psychotherapists contend they are using techniques to regress their clients back to childhood, where they can recover long-repressed memories of abuse, and that doing so is an essential part of a healing process. The psychologists, by contrast, contend such claims are hogwash, that there's simply no evidence of a capacity to either repress or recover memories on anything like that scale. What the therapists are doing, they say, is creating false memories, through hypnotically induced fantasies. Furthermore, they can prove this is the case for experiments in their laboratories. The therapists remain unimpressed, preferring to trust their direct experience of their client's pain and healing over some contrived and artificial laboratory test. Obviously, I'm generalising in attributing particular views on memory to whole groups. There are, of course, therapists who reject the idea of recovered memories, and I'm sure some psychologists believe in repressed and recovered ones. What we're seeing is different groups employing different methods of inquiry to arrive at radically different conclusions about the world the scientific versus the anecdotal. I don't have a knee-jerk reaction away from one and towards the other. If anything, I would slightly favour the anecdotal, as it does often seem like a fool's errand to apply the methodology of hard science to something as soft as the human mind. Prior to any investigation, both claims regarding the nature of memory appear almost equally ludicrous to me. Let's take the notion of false memory first. Psychologists claim there is a huge discrepancy between how accurate we perceive our memories to be and how accurate they actually are. The boundary between memory and fantasy is much more porous than we take it to be, and it is entirely possible to rebrand fantasy as memory, up to and including inventing entire chunks of our biographies. 
it seems highly implausible that this could be going on without us noticing, especially in the modern era where we all log our lives on Facebook and continuously carry recording equipment around in our pockets. Wouldn't all acts of reminiscing with childhood friends end in substantial disagreement over narrative? I've never experienced this. Sure, there are plenty of things I either can't remember or don't remember well. Perhaps I sometimes even patch these memories with guesswork to tell a story, but I'm aware I'm doing that. I wouldn't stand up in court and repeat my claims. When I speak to my childhood friends, we all have a consistent narrative about our shared past. As an example, I recently met up with several old friends and we found a treasure trove of photos of us together going back 20 years. The totally amazing thing was, everything was exactly as we remembered. None of us expressed any shock at anything we saw. I was able to find specific photos because I could remember when they were taken. With one in particular, I wasn't sure if it was the summer of 2004 or 5, but I knew that I wasn't sure about that. I didn't concoct a definitive narrative. I do find when discussing past interactions, people will remember situations differently on the level of intention, but that's because their interpretation was different at the time. I always experience consistency on the level of narrative. Is this whole false memory theory simply concocted by psychologists, based on laboratory experiments that have no translation to the real world, and jumped upon by predators and their lawyers as a cover for abuse? The world's most renowned memory expert, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, testified at the trial of Jeffrey Epstein. She described as definitely plausible the idea that financial rewards could cause a human brain to create a false traumatic memory. Dr. Loftus has testified for the defense at the trials of many of the most high-profile sex offenders of recent decades. Is that what's going on here? And yet, we have endless accounts of people recovering substantial amounts of memory through regression therapy. So if the idea of false memory is false, then these memories must be true. Yet this possibility scarcely sounds any more plausible. It's certainly true that we are always forgetting and remembering things. We may be reminded through conversations, a song on the radio, or smells, which for some neurological reason are particularly good at inducing memory. But do we really have the capacity to suppress substantial parts of our biography so completely we have no idea they even happened? You'll have to excuse my graphic language here, but does it sound realistic that a father may go into his daughter's room each night and sexually assault her, only for her to wake up with no memory of the incident the next morning? Would she be equally shocked by his arrival every subsequent night? Or what about the schoolchild, sodomized on the principal's desk? who forgets all about it as she walks back down the corridor to class. You may think I'm being ridiculous, trivialising the most serious of crimes, but this is quite literally what's being suggested. It all sounds even more ludicrous than false memory. When these memories only surface decades later, when a person is undergoing visualisation exercises in a therapist's office, would we not be safe to assume they are likely iatrogenic? induced by the therapist, especially when they veer off into extravagant and implausible narratives about past lives, alien abductions, and satanic ritual abuse. It seems safe then to dismiss both claims of false and recovered memories as being preposterous, and I can end this podcast here. Except, we have people reporting recovered memories, 
and people claiming they recovered false memories. Therefore, at least one of these two possibilities, however unlikely it sounds, must be true. I am then clearly wrong in one of my assumptions. There is technically a third possibility, that all people claiming to have recovered memory are simply lying. Whilst this might seem like the most tempting answer, it's just not plausible on any level. I'm sure it does occur. Some human beings possess a shocking capacity to lie, but no one would contend that lies could account for the scale of this phenomenon. With lies eliminated, how might we determine which one of the remaining explanations is true? Prior to investigation, it might be good to propose some falsifiable premises, conditions that, if met, would throw a particular view into doubt. Doing so acts to prevent after-the-fact justifications for results not favouring our preferred theory. I'll pose some questions along these lines. Just to acknowledge, I am being a little artificial here, as I do know the answers to them, but I'm doing my best to put myself in a position of knowing nothing and thinking from that place what the right questions might be. If psychotherapists really are able to induce false memories through visualisation exercises, then we would expect to see psychologists replicating this feat in a laboratory setting. The nature of the replication may vary for various reasons. Ethical considerations will prevent these scientists from convincing the subject they had been abused. The power dynamic will be different than with a therapist. Plus a therapist might have years to work on a client. Taking all this into consideration, however, we should still expect to see some level of replication. If psychologists are utterly unable to do so, that might be pretty damning for the theory of induced false memory. We would also expect to see substantial numbers of people who have recovered false memories at some point coming to believe their memories were indeed induced by therapists and describing how that magic trick was performed. To dismiss this, we would need to double down and claim that not only can people recover repressed memories, but they can also, in addition to that, reclassify memories as fantasies. Two magic tricks for the price of one. If recovered memories are real, then we would expect to see multiple accounts of verification, either through physical evidence or corroboration by other people. Obviously abuse has few witnesses, but given its extent, even if it were only one case in a hundred, we would expect a parent to confess, or siblings to corroborate accounts from memory that had always existed for them. With regard to satanic ritual abuse, we would expect that occasionally the recovered memories would lead to where the bodies are buried. If this never happens, or only happens in a tiny number of semi-verifiable cases, then that would indicate the accounts are, on the whole, false. Therapists cannot reliably recover memories. If recovered memories are true, you would not expect them to give rise to entirely implausible memories. This is difficult, as deciding what constitutes implausible takes us directly into metaphysical questions. Is it implausible that people have past lives, or are abducted by aliens? That really depends on your worldview. I would suggest the most implausible narrative is that of a grand satanic cult, permeating every level of society. Before I start to answer these questions, I'll just address why this issue is important. There are two reasons for me. The first is the therapeutic angle, and that I have a general interest in where subjects can adopt foundational assumptions which send them spiralling into weird and not-so-wonderful directions. I've been exploring this recently with virology, 
And it also seems to me to be the case in certain schools of psychotherapy. This one bites a little closer to home due to my background in spirituality. I've done a substantial amount of regression type therapy exercises, which have had a profound effect on me. I never recovered utterly unknown memories, or even attempted to do so, but I also never considered there was much harm in it. In mild contradiction to what I've just said, I have done a past life regression session, but I saw it as theatre of the mind, psychologically insightful maybe, but unlikely to be historically true. A lot of the trauma therapists who I hear being absolutely lambasted by the false memory camp will be people held in high regard in some of the circles I've moved in, so examining this issue has at times been challenging for me. The second reason comes from my interest in conspiracy theory. In the series I'm producing on the writings of David Icke, I realised just how much of his work, and by extension modern conspiracy culture, is based on recovered memories. People like Kathy O'Brien and Bryce Taylor, who claim to have recovered memories of their involvement in the CIA's MKUltra program, have shaped how people see the world and shaped it in a far more conspiratorial direction. The same could be said for recovered memories of past lives and alien encounters. They are shaping substantial subcultures. Let's start by looking at the laboratory evidence for human ability to falsify memory. Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who is either a hero or the worst kind of villain, depending on who you ask, is certainly the psychologist most associated with false memory research. In the clip I'm about to play you, Dr. Loftus is describing the experiments she and others developed in response to the satanic ritual abuse narrative that was emerging from therapists' offices. And then uh, along came an even more bizarre kind of, of memory problem. Uh, some people were going into therapy. Uh, maybe they had depression. Maybe they had an eating disorder. They had some problem that brought them to a therapist's office, and they would come out of this therapy with a different problem. Horrific memories of abuse that had happened to them as children. Many of them accused their fathers, their uncles, their former neighbors, their former teachers, their former dentists, their former anyone of horrific abuse that happened to them when they were children. Sometimes these memories involved being forced into satanic rituals, uh, being forced to watch animals be sacrificed, being forced into baby breeding and baby sacrifice. And sometimes individuals were prosecuted for these alleged offenses uh, or sued in civil court. And I began to be called as an expert witness to look into these cases, uh, and particularly these satanic ritual abuse cases for which High-level experts in the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, had said, you know, I've investigated so many of these claims and never found any corroborating uh, evidence. So where do these bizarre memories come from? Where do they come from? And invariably, these accusers had been in psychotherapy. So what was going on in this psychotherapy? Well, sometimes imagination, guided imagination, uh, 
why don't you, you don't remember anybody abusing you, you've got all the symptoms of somebody who was abused, why don't you just close your eyes and try to imagine who might have done this to you? Or, or sometimes sexualized dream interpretation. Uh, sometimes hypnosis was used. Uh, sometimes just exposing people to false information. And out of this process, you would get these individuals having these incredibly detailed, horrific memories, sometimes for events that went over 10 years or more. And now they allegedly were repressed into the unconscious and they were brought back to life through this psychotherapy. At least that was the position of these therapists. And yet many of us thought, that false memories were perhaps being created. I mean, we knew for sure uh, that they were in some cases when people remembered things that were biologically, geographically, or psychologically impossible. Um, and at some point, I thought, I really want to st study this process. And the old misinformation paradigm, where you take somebody who's seen an event and gets a bit of misinformation that changes their memory for the details of the event, just wasn't going to quite cut it. We needed a new paradigm, and so we developed something uh, that we now call the rich false memory paradigm. So what happens here? There's no event to begin with, but we ply people with suggestive or false information, and then we test them to see what they, they can remember about the experience, either a childhood experience or something from the, more, from the more recent past. Now, this is what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to plant a complete false memory in the minds of my research subjects. But for those of you who are working on college and university uh, campuses, you, uh, you know, I mean, and I, I assume this is the case in, in many other places besides the ones I'm familiar with, that the universities have human subjects committees, uh, ethics committees. So you want to do a study with human subjects, you've got to pass your proposed research by this committee and get approval. We didn't think it was very likely that our committee was going to look too favorably on a proposal that said, we're, we want to convince um, women that their fathers raped them in satanic rituals and forced them to you know, sacrifice animals. No. So we needed an analog. And of course, a lot of what psychological research is about is finding those analogs. We wanted to plant something that if it had actually happened, it would have been at least mildly traumatic. And eventually we came up with the idea, why don't we make people believe and remember when they were five or six years old, they were lost in a shopping mall, that they were frightened, crying, and ultimately rescued by an elderly person and reunited with the family. And that is what we did. We, through a few suggestive interviews, we planted this false memory in about a quarter of our subjects, either a complete or a partial false memory, uh, and we published uh, those findings. Well, right away, of course, the, the therapists, they got an inkling that, uh, 
this was going to, we were going to attempt to apply this to some of them and their questionable practices. And they were quick to criticize. And the first criticisms I heard, which you know, were, not, were not too bad, went something like this. You know, getting, getting lost is so common. If you're going to talk about false memories you know, on the same page as you're going to be talking about people who are remembering sexual abuse and rit satanic rituals, at least show us that you can plan a false memory for something that would have been more unusual, more bizarre, more upsetting, more arousing if it had actually happened. Not, not a bad criticism, and uh, scientists, and we too, rose to the occasion and conducted those rich false memory studies with more unusual events. A group <clears throat> in Tennessee planted a false memory that when you were a kid, you nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard, succeeding with about a third of their subjects. A group in Canada planted a false memory that something as awful as being attacked by a vicious animal happened to you when you were a child. And they're getting really good because they succeeded with about half of their sample. Uh, I collaborated with an Italian collaborator, and we planted a false memory that when you were a kid, you witnessed someone being demonically possessed. And uh, a more recent study, again out of Canada, planning a false memory that when you were a teenager, you committed a crime, and it was serious enough that the police actually came to investigate. Um, when they published this paper, by the way, in Psych Science, they reported that they succeeded with 70% of their sample of ordinary uh, adults. And I will say that <clears throat> many people in the field were kind of shocked at that such a high rate of success in planning a false memory. Um, they managed to get the raw data from uh, the investigator of that committing a crime study. Uh, they felt the you know, there is a question of how do you, how do you decide that this person has a false memory or not? How do you put them in one category or another? There is some bit of arbitrary or capriciousness to that decision. Um, they, but this group uh, used a more conservative coding scheme and knocked down the false memory rate in the crime study to about 30 to 35 percent. But still, I would argue, it's pretty impressive if you can take adults and, and with a few suggestive interviews and interventions, convince 30% of them that they committed a crime as a teenager that was completely uh, made up. Ethical considerations in Italy must be somewhat more lax if you can convince people they witnessed demonic possession. Or maybe such an event is just considered more normal there. As Dr. Loftus acknowledges, there are difficulties in knowing whether someone is really experiencing a memory or if they are conforming to what they feel they're expected to say. It's also not clear how solidly these memories were implanted. Would a person disown their family over them? Would they feel so confident as to repeat them under cross-examination in court? Obviously we can't know. But what emerges from these experiments is what we'd expect to find if recovered memories can indeed be false. And we can't ignore that. 
How does this laboratory work compare to what people experience in the real world, our therapy sessions? To examine this, I'm first going to play one more science clip. This one is of a Dr. Julia Shaw, who is describing carrying out the experiment of implanting a memory of a crime Dr. Loftus mentioned. And if we arrive at my research, which I'm going to describe now, which is that I convince people that they committed crimes or had other emotional experiences that never happened. Things like you would come into my lab and I might convince you that you were attacked by an animal, that you lost a large sum of money, or that you injured yourself. Alternatively, because I'm a criminal psychologist, I'm also interested in trying to convince you that you committed a crime, a crime like attacking someone attacking someone with a weapon, or stealing something, all with police contact. Now, what happens in these situations is that 70% of the participants ultimately come to accept this alternate reality, as I've suggested it to them, and they start to tell me, like my aunts, all about it. This is why I did it. Here is the situation. Here's who, here's who I was fighting. And the way it works is that I get participants to come into my lab, And I tell them, I start with trust. I tell them and I say, I've contacted your parents. These are university students. I've contacted your parents. And they said that six years ago, you attacked someone. What do you remember? And they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I go, okay, do you want to try something? When a psychologist asks you if you want to try something, be careful. <laughs> and of course, everybody says yes. Yes, I want to try this because they think, and this is key, They think that I know something about their lives that they can't remember. So they need to trust me. They need to think that I actually have this information. And then I say, okay, let's try this. Imagine what it could have been like. Let's try to dig this memory out. And what we find is that after repeatedly imagining the event as it could have been, three times over three weeks, people have increasing difficulty distinguishing between things that they just imagined and things that they experienced. And now we're back to our flexible brains, because the reason it's so difficult to tell the difference is that actually, in the brain, imagined experiences and lived experiences can be identical, especially if you get people to imagine multi-sensory components. What did it smell like? What did it feel like? Because that's usually what we use as the marker to distinguish the two. And now if we listen to this news item on a real-world experience, I'm not going to answer any of your questions. Dr. Mark Schwartz is a St. Louis psychologist accused of planting fake memories in vulnerable patients. False memories that included satanic abuse and even murder. Two women are suing Schwartz in the Castlewood Treatment Center where he's the clinical co-director. One of them told us her emotional story. All I wanted was some help with my eating disorder. <laughs> I would describe it as a living nightmare. Nassif arrived at Castlewood in July 2007, staying for a total of 15 months. Her attorney, Ken Volstek, says the residential treatment cost about $650,000. During that time, she claims that her psychologist, Dr. Mark Schwartz, brainwashed her into believing she was abused in a satanic cult and that she had murdered a child. I thought I had participated in cult rituals in sacrificing a child. I was scared all the time. Were you harmed by what happened at Castlewood? 
Absolutely. And not just me. I mean, you know, my family. Even my ex-husband's a casualty. You know what I mean? There's just... It wasn't... It wasn't just me. I thought I was a horrible, evil person. <laughs> or at least the part of me was. I couldn't do it one more day. I couldn't. I just couldn't live with myself. Why not? I wasn't the exception. Three ex-staff at Castlewood say the treatment center had an extraordinarily high percentage of patients diagnosed with dissociative disorders, multiple personalities, and satanic abuse. Diagnoses, they say, typically required longer treatment. I would say that's a pretty strong comparison between the laboratory and the real world. By 1997, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation claimed to have documented 5,851 retractors people who had retracted allegations of abuse as they came to see them as based on false memories. Let's allow there's a certain ambiguity in what constitutes a retractor, whether they were retracting all or just some allegations, for example. We're still dealing with a substantial number. I'll now play some clips of other retractors so you get a sense of their experience. Jan Downing of Newbury, Massachusetts, says her therapist did anything but heal, that she went from an active mother of three to a wreck contemplating suicide. In 1985, she says she took her son to a psychologist because she didn't know how to handle his temper tantrums. But then she found she was the patient. Well, the therapist asked me if I had any memories of sexual abuse, just point out asked me. And I said no. And he said he wanted me to think about it. You mean this was offered by the therapist? Oh, it was not my idea. This was not my agenda. When I, mean, I didn't seek therapy for that reason. She says she was encouraged to read books on incest and join incest survivor groups. That her therapist began using a technique that she says put her into a trance-like state. It is called guided imagery. It led her back to a childhood she now says never existed. The therapist would use words like, well, were you being touched then? And I think the combination of anxiety, fear, the general feeling of being hypnotized and in a trance, the feeling that I wanted to please the therapist, you know, then I was able to come up and say, well, I remember when my uncle fondled me and... You started supplying details. Yes, very and specific details. Had that uncle fondled you? Had Absolutely he? not. After eight years of therapy, in and out of hospitals, Downing was convinced not only her uncle, but her mother had molested her. She was encouraged to confront her family, and she did. I tried to rip this family apart. I'd go to my brothers and tell them, you know, you were probably abused too. When are you going to begin to look at your issues? You're just in denial. What's the matter with you? I thought I had all the answers. It was the death of her mother that jolted her, made her question the validity of those memories of abuse. She went to her grave believing... Um, that I hated her, that I was blaming her for these things, um, that what she did was wrong. A few weeks ago, she filed suit against her therapist for fraud and malpractice. 
she alleges he induced the false memory of incest. My next guests have different opinions about uh, all these reports of satanic abuse. Mary Lewis is a psychotherapist. She says that half of her patients were abused in cult rituals. Elizabeth, on the other hand, says it's all a bunch of lies. You used to believe, as I understand, Elizabeth, uh, in, in what uh, Aubrey is talking about. That's correct. Yeah. What, hap wh what was your experience? Um, the therapist that I was dealing with was pretty much like a guru to me. And through the course of the therapy that I went through, um, I literally got to the point where I would have believed just about anything she put into my mind. Uh, what did you begin to believe about yourself? Well, my story is not, is similar in some ways to Aubrey's. Um, I did not believe that I had given birth to children, but at one point of time I did believe that I had personally um, sacrificed babies, eaten after birth, um, drank blood. You believe that? At one time I did, yes. Uh, what made you, th what, what changed your mind? Well, after um, being involved with this therapist for a couple of years, I started doubting. What made you doubt? Aubrey doesn't doubt. Well, for me, um, I was on a lot of medication and whenever I would question the therapist about um, my doubts. She would increase the medication, uh, put me into hypnosis. She used amitol therapy treatments, different things like that. And I was continually told whenever I doubted that I was um, in what they called denial. So in other words, you ended up thinking, you end up believing now that you were brainwashed by your therapist. Most definitely. This phenomenon overlaps with multiple personality or disassociative identity disorder. Again, a strong case can be made for this being primarily an iatrogenic or doctor-induced illness. Tiny, the women you're about to meet were told they were suffering from the same bizarre ailment, multiple personality disorder, as a result of repressed memories from childhood. We were having a lot of marriage problems. Both of us had lost our jobs. We had lost our home, had to file bankruptcy. It was very suicidal. I was very vulnerable. She checked into the psychiatric ward of a St. Paul hospital where she met Diane Umanansky, a psychiatrist Elizabeth says would change her life forever. She told me that the other psychiatrist that I had seen had misdiagnosed me and that she had all the answers and through her therapy was the only way I was going to get better. And you trusted her? I trusted her. And what did Dr. Umanansky say to you? in that first session. She had talked about how she was a pioneer in multiple personality disorder and that she said I showed a lot of the symptoms of multiple personality disorder. So when you heard this from this doctor, what's going through your head? There's a part of me that was going, mm, this is kind of weird, but at the same time there's another part of me going, well maybe this is the answer. How many personalities did Dr. Umanansky say you had? Literally I lost count, but I know it was like well over 30. I don't even know at this point, 50, 60. The childlike part of myself that would get down on the floor and play with my children 
was not the real me. That was an altered personality. She gave them names, and if I couldn't come up with a name, she had one for it. There was an old woman in me. I had a nun in me. Rage was one. Let me see if I understand this correctly. For every mood, a happy yes. mood, a, a sad mood, she would assign you a personality mm. for each mood? And every degree of those moods. But now, both women say they never had multiple personalities. They say the idea was planted by their doctor, Dr. Umanansky. The two women are suing her for malpractice and negligence. She would delve into strange things, just bizarre things. Like what? Are you sure you weren't in a cult? Are you sure you weren't into satanic ritualistic abuse? And this came out of nowhere. Why did you keep going? I'd never dealt with the psychiatric community before, and this was somebody that was recommended to me by other professionals. Who else do you turn to? In their lawsuits, Elizabeth and Leanne allege Dr. Umanansky's treatment was coercive and included prescribing powerful mind-altering drugs, using hypnosis, telling them to watch television shows on MPD. Women with terrifying tales of multiple personality disorder. And ordering them to read certain books and watch certain movies. Go and rent the movie Sybil. Have a copy so you can watch it continuously. Read books on satanic abuse. You know, because I'm sure there's some in your background you just have repressed it. As time went on, the books and videotapes became more horrific, more graphic. I started having nightmares. I was told that anything that happened in my dream state was reality, was really a repressed memory. How does somebody convince someone that they have multiple personalities? It's like a cult. You're led down this road to believe more and more and more people have perpetrated you. It starts out with sexual abuse, then it gets into multiple personality disorder. They claim in their lawsuit when they resisted Dr. Umanansky's MPD diagnosis, she would threaten. This is how I'm diagnosing you, and if you don't like the diagnosis, I will diagnose you as something else extremely psychotic. You will end up in a state mental institution and you will lose your children. Dr. Umanansky said that to you. She said those words to me many times. Near the start of this episode, I positioned this issue as a conflict between psychologists relying on science and psychotherapists preferencing anecdotal experience. That's actually not true, as many of the therapists wrapped up in this utterly ignore the anecdotes of their clients when they claim their recovered memories were actually false. Therapists in this camp justify their acceptance of implausible scenarios on the basis that it is essential to believe the victim. That is, of course, until the victim accuses them of being the victimizer, in which case it becomes entirely appropriate to deny everything they say. To justify this stance, therapists have to develop a theory of re-repression. This is, however, a different kind of repression. Now the memories are not re-forgotten, but rather they are reclassified as fantasies. This seems odd, as their whole case is that fantasy can't be mistaken for memory. So it's a one-way street. By looking at the evidence of scientists, and I have to say more compellingly for me, the testimonies of people having been through therapy, I acknowledge that false memory must be a real thing. On some level, however, I do find it very hard to accept. It's so outside my own experience. I'll share three things that have helped me with this. Firstly, we don't know if a certain percentage of the population is particularly susceptible. Perhaps we all are, but Elizabeth Loftus found around 25% of people would believe they were lost in her imaginary shopping centre. Perhaps, and I'm just speculating here, but perhaps there is a top 10, 1, or even 0.1% who are especially susceptible. 
I do know a very small number of people who seem to conflate reality and fantasy rather easily. Perhaps this is why I and others are so incredulous about this experience. We're just not in that group. The second thing is, in listening to and reading through accounts of people who have gone through this, it doesn't always sound to me like they are generating what I would call memories. Often it sounds like a therapist, in a position of influence over them, encourages them to redefine what memory is. Now dreams, as well as the random impressions that pop into our minds, can be this different type of memory. Recovered memory. Finally, through having been quite heavily involved in meditation, I am aware that quietening the mind can allow the imagination to open up in shockingly powerful ways. This would be akin to what people go through in hypnotic regression sessions, and it's not surprising to me that it is surprising to them. I've gone and done what I always do, which is to plan to cover a whole issue in a single episode, only to realise that it's far too much. I'm going to leave the issue of recovered memories, as well as impossible memories and healing through memories, to future episodes. There's one further thing I'd like to do before I conclude. As I mentioned, this episode is a spin-off of my series on British conspiracist David Icke. In episode 4 of that series, I played a clip of Cathy O'Brien, who seems to me to have had a huge influence on David's work. Kathy O'Brien recovered memories of being born into an intergenerational ritual abuse family, then soared into the CIA's MKUltra program, where amongst other things, she was sexually abused by various presidents of the United States and other world leaders. I'm going to play a composite clip from her documentary film, and then contrast it with another one. My name is Kathy O'Brien, and I'm a survivor of MKUltra mind control, specifically the CIA's Project Monarch aspect, which is a multi-generational study that they were doing, and use of multi-generational incest-based children. After three generations, behavior becomes autogenic, and that was part of the Hitler-Himmler research that was brought over in Project Paperclip by the Nazi and fascist scientists who are combining that information with the CIA back when I was born. My family had been sexually abused. My father was sexually abused. My mother was sexually abused. They'd both been ritually abused. Their parents had been. And of course, I was being sexually abused. My father had been sexually abusing me as far back as I can remember. He, he bragged about sexually abusing me in infancy. And even though I couldn't determined that what he was doing was wrong. My brain still responded to his sexual abuse on its own. Our brains autogenically respond to trauma the same way. And my brain was trying to protect me from the sexual abuse that I was enduring. And it was so suffocating to me as as an infant that it caused what is known as dissociative identity disorder, or formerly known as multiple personality disorder. This is now professionally defined 
this disorder is, as the mind's sane defense to trauma too horrible to comprehend. I developed a compartment in my brain, a little area behind amnesic barriers that was actually the neuron pathway shutting down in my brain in order to compartmentalize the memory of abuse so that the rest of my mind could function normally as though nothing had happened. They knew that that kind of compartmentalized brain response would be an ideal place to hide government secrets back then because I couldn't think to bring those to mind. And this is why they started grooming me from such an early age. My father's sexual abuse expanded into child pornography and he was sending this child pornography of me through the U.S. mails and it was he was caught the pornography was confiscated by a criminal faction of our government the local politician approached my father and told him that he would receive immunity from prosecution if he would sell me into the cia's mk ultra project monarch They subjected me to an occult blood ritual that was referred to as the right to remain silent. This blood ritual was so horrible that my mind readily accepted the mind manipulation that I endured afterwards, a hypnotic language, the neuro-linguistic programming that actually changed the way that my brain was functioning. They wanted me exposed to more trauma, especially occult trauma. It was um, through the slaughter of animals in, it, in any kind of occult ritual. And I experienced some horrific um, occult abuses through who would become my first handler in MKUltra. I'm so fortunate that an intelligence insider who saw the kind of corruption that was going on in the highest levels of government saved my life so that um, we could begin to expose what was being done. Mark Phillips was so outraged by what he saw, he decided to take action. When he rescued me out of that situation, I had no memory whatsoever. I had no conscious thought of my own. I only knew to do exactly what I'd been programmed to do. To be able to think on my own was like, was like my brain would go into this black hole and, and, and I'd be pushing it, trying to, to make a decision even on maybe what to have for dinner, you know, just to even think that thought was an exercise in itself. Because of what he knew in mind sciences, what he knew about when spies were tortured and traumatized, how they could come back from that, um, and how they could heal. He knew all the methods that the government had for helping them, and took that information and just handed me the keys to my own mind. He also taught me that as my brain felt safe and began flashing memory that I should make notes of whatever that flash was as, as fast as it happened just still make a little note. Now here's a clip of a lady who recovered similar memories but concluded that they were false. 
Dr. Bennett Brown founded the Dissociative Disorders Unit one year ago as part of Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center. Meet Pat. I'm 32. I'm married. I have two children. By outward appearances, she is normal. But inside are dozens of different people. Where would Pat be without this unit? I wouldn't be alive. Uh, chances are my children and husband wouldn't be alive either. Pat Burgess was one of the first patients on the unit in 1986. She arrived after having been in a depression for three years, following the difficult birth of her second son. When a social worker diagnosed her with MPD, she sought help at Rush. These were the experts. Um, they were in a very well-respected teaching institution. I turned to that teaching institution for state-of-the-art medical care, cutting-edge medical care. I didn't turn to them for fringe therapy, some goofy, controversial crap. What do you hear her say? That the hurting is over. Dr. Braun often treated me like his star patient. Um, I would have to teach other residents and doctors and, and media people about multiple personality disorder. Who's there? Sarah. How old are you, Sarah? For five. I was supposed to switch personalities for, for the camera. Who's this? Karen. Karen, you don't seem too happy. I'm not. Dr. Braun and I kind of rehearsed that a few times to make sure that it looked believable for, for the interviewer. I was supposed to talk about how if it wasn't for Dr. Braun, I wouldn't be alive. Where would Pat be without this unit? No, I wouldn't be alive. Patty says that Dr. Braun both pushed her to remember things that didn't occur and then believed her stories. After a year in the hospital, Patty traced the satanic history of her family back to the 17th century. Satanic cult practices have been passed down through the paternal side of the family. Dr. Braun asked me to write up something to do a presentation at his conference. It was supposed to be one of my alter personalities giving a history about the cult. The satanic activity has been genealogically traced to a southern Slavic region of Europe during the Middle Evil Ages when her forebears were the supreme monarchs of the blood royal. I believe that I was a satanic high priestess, that I was controlling a satanic cult in a nine-state region. Revealed was the history of multi- I took it deadly serious. Satanic worship, torturous human sacrifice, cannibalism, and I brain worship. all reality and fantasy just blended together. I was drugged, I was hypnotized, and I was mentally ill. She also knew nothing of the but I was told that, you know, until I hit bottom, until I dug all of this stuff out, I would never get better and I would never have a chance for any kind of a future for my children. I'm certainly not claiming this is what happened with Kathy O'Brien. For all I know, she may really have been both abused by her parents and a part of the CIA's mind control program. I'm not saying the following to belittle that. But I also don't know that people aren't being abducted by aliens or experiencing past lives. 
Perhaps I'll address the metaphysical implications of impossible memories in a future episode. I think I have demonstrated, however, at least to my own satisfaction, that there is a plausible alternative account for these phenomena, which must be taken seriously by investigators, not to mention therapists. Surely false memory is grossly and somewhat understandably underestimated and must account for a significant number of these kinds of reports. I started out by describing Elizabeth Loftus's defense of Jeffrey Epstein. When I began this investigation some months ago, it seemed crazy to me, as if Dr. Loftus had tarnished her reputation and work by making such an outlandish claim. I've come to understand why, from a certain perspective, it makes sense. I also appreciate that, if you have finally summoned the courage to take your childhood abuser to court, the sight of some academic on the witness stand writing your memories off as false would make you despise them. There is an inherent tension in this subject which isn't going to go away. People alternate between being angels and demons, depending on which side of the line you're on. Both sides certainly have their victims. Thank you for listening. I've been informed on this issue by the work of the journalist Mark Pendergrast in his books Victims of Memory and Memory Warp, although I must state all opinions here are mine and not his. I've also drawn a lot of the clips from the YouTube channel Lilith Jean, which has compiled many of the false memory documentaries from the 1990s. Finally, thank you to those who have supported this podcast either through a subscription or on my Buy Me A Coffee page. It's very much appreciated.